0: Welcome to A Writer in Italy, the podcast. I am your host, Michelle Johnston, and this is a little share in the world of travel, books, art, food, and lifestyle. I live in Australia, yet have long had an attraction to the Mediterranean countries for as long as I can remember. This inspiration has fueled my creative life and given me incredible joy over the years, as an artist and a writer. If you are new to the podcast, season one is the bookshare in the shadow of a cypress, an Italian adventure, and then many other musings on books, art, cooking, and indeed the lure of Italy as the ultimate muse. You can find all show notes at MichelleJohnston.life and follow me on Instagram at A writer in Italy end at the yellow house underscore thank you for joining me i love having you here for the journey of muse italia welcome to episode 39 and a little rendezvous in the french countryside in the mountainous area of the luberon this is a little prelude to visiting paris so here we go i'm on my way thank you for joining me today Waking up in the French farmhouse, the mood is the colour of Rosa Honey Dijon. The rose has strong delicate petals the colour of coffee, with a hint of blush on the tips depending on the season. I am inspired, in other words. The room is lit by a white linen curtain that floats from an iron rod, classic French touches I have tried to replicate at home. The desk that was spare and inviting is now littered with an assortment of paraphernalia, but otherwise it is as quiet as a tomb. Beyond the farmhouse it is just acres of land and vineyards that run up beside the driveway. It is hard to tell they are even there at this time of the year. Dark, twisted forms, row after row, nothing like their true self in the later months. Sitting in the kitchen with the red tile, I pour a cappuccino and collect a large pile of Mason's sud magazines. I am fully present now. This is like a gift from the travel gods. Provence and one of my favourite magazines. It does sound ridiculous, I know, but at home these cost the bomb. Are completely in French, which obviously makes sense, but they are a visual feast. I occasionally buy one, just for art. and joy as the Mediterranean colours completely saturate me. It is a paradox. I can do serene, one silver ornate lamp and a flax linen curtain, and a stone wall kind of look. And then on the other hand, I want a splash of cadmium red, up against deep crimson, like a Rothkoes detail on my wall too. Or perhaps a Pollock. I can paint too, if I want to. But I need to dive in, and sometimes this takes weeks and days to get going. But anyway, at this moment I am thrilled. A little quiet time with my coffee and all is well. And so I muse over Picasso, Antibes, Aix, Provence and La Esprit, Riviera. Pity I don't have days to really devour the collection. When you travel, you must keep a wise balance. See, do, be, lean in, and lean out but always stay open yet it is good to put a place into context and I know even if this is a prelude to more down the track seeds have been planted moments shared all of it is going to carry me forward haphazardly at first but I already know a match has been lit in my shoe I walk outside to admire the cypress the stone wall the blue shutters a pastel cerulean blue actually it is exactly the same color of the details on our own house at home the cottage incredible the exact blue although for years i have wanted to paint it pale green another kind of provencal look or perhaps a little italian to go up against the butter yellow walls in the morning light the view of lacoste across the way and the rocky outline is picturesque in the distance Punctuated by the limbs of trees Although it's not a perfect late winter's day It is like spring When the winds unleash its razor edge I checked it will be 13 degrees And wind gusts at an annoying speed Well, annoying if trying to hang some clothes on the line Which is what I try and do I walk the distance to the line It is just like at home A solid trek to the wooden poles and wires For the domestic life It is easier if I do this now. Still, we have days ahead in Paris before flying home. At home, the line was once close to our house, in the middle, oddly, of a pebbled pathway. Then one day, a crazier wind came along, and the Manchurian pair split into two. Half of it fell and landed on top of the hill's hoist, the quintessential Australian clothesline. Fortunately, we had a spare one in the garage. My husband, who enjoys hoarding wood, also seems to carry things like this from house to house and since we have a long backyard and a paddock we decide to plant the new line further away from the house up next to the chook pen which makes sense yet now I walk about 20 meters to reach it just like I do this day in Provence with a basket on my hip usually at home but this day a red bag to carry the laundry. I wonder who I am in this scene strangely domestic "'Yet my feet are firmly planted on the ground. "'I am looking to the edge of the property. "'I am a line of poetry that runs away too fast. "'I cannot catch the words nor the sound. "'Whoosh, gone. "'I am laughing out loud as the wind whips around my legs and my hair. "'And usually I have left my hair down. "'It slaps my eyes. "'I wonder if it is all pointless, "'that I will find all of these things, "'the jeans, the socks, the jumpers, "'laying at the bottom of the empty pool.' Or worse, in the trees. I head over past the ancient plane trees to the driveway and wander up the dirt path. The patchwork of vineyard talks to me, telling me to come back one summer in about 2023. The neat display of wine grapes gets all of my Provencal fantasies arching gracefully. Oh, yes, this is it vines and the Luberon. The fantasy is real, very real. And the romance too. Even if it is the end of winter. And even if it only lasts one day. One perfect day driving through Provence. Searching for beauty. There is nothing wrong with that. I think about the gardens and the people who have made this region their home. And I think about the fist full of petals I will hold. Yes, you can exist like this for a little while. Coffee stained, but etched no less. Over a full-blooded vein. Back inside I recover with a herbal tea, an elixir of pucker. It is a British company and organic goodness. I sit and read about the Roman Bridge and Dora Maar's house in Minogue. It is now a residence for artists and writers. I explain to everyone that that is what we are doing this day, and no one minds. They are here under my duress and my keen interest. My leanings, let's say. I realise that it's like a five-minute drive away, that the house the film The Good Year*, was filmed in is not far away either. The girls tell me we must go have a look. Yes, indeed, we must. They are invested just as much as I am. I believe I mentioned that in the last episode. Driving out to the farmhouse, it is the dormant vineyards that run right up to the road that hold my attention. They are percolating just under the righteous soil, just waiting for the longer days of sun and light. Along the way, farmhouses and land. The rural life. Orchards full of cherry trees and almonds. They are pruned tightly and lined in rows. The French are masters of symmetry and line. They know how to not only have a space functioning, but they are often aesthetically appealing too. To see it in bloom though, the white flowers would transform this vision in only a few weeks. I have a few fruiting cherry trees at home, so I know they are exceptional in the spring. All of it reminiscent of a life I do not have, but glorious in its being. Provence. Driving through the noble village of Lacoste, we stop at the sign to Minerve. More cypress and historic ramparts. Supposedly, the Marquis de Sade once lived here. The old castle was in a miserable state the years after his death, when Pierre cut in, later on, the designer, gave it the once-over architecturally speaking, and it is now a place for culture and the arts. The town feels like it has been there forever, just like Banu, old mountainous villages that feel very quiet at this time of the year, and humble on this particular day. Yet why would anyone come out to wander around with the wind billowing through the stony streets? Stones are a common theme in these villages. Stone walls, stone houses, a muted palette. in the occasional forsythia craning gracefully over a fence, a yellow highlight, the Easter tree I believe it is called in Europe. At home, its golden flowers are an early spring display and just called phacelia. For Easter in the Southern Hemisphere is an autumn affair. The one cypress in the middle of the homes will stand guard. We see the sign to Minerb, eight kilometres, and continue driving. Entering Minerbe to a rows of plane trees on each side is perfect for the roaming eye. The sign at the entrance of the village promotes three flags, French, Italian, and the EU. The sign says Grzani Cavour and since that is in Piedmonte, Italy, I sense that perhaps there is a connection here for the truffles. In the Plaza de la Hollage, across the town hall, is the House of Truffles and Wine, and you can visit to sample the delights of the region if around in the spring and summer months. Minerbe is a quiet and small, fortified village, perched dramatically up on a ridge with a population of about a thousand. There are a few restaurants and cafes, and it is named in honour of the Roman goddess Minerva. This landscape has seen many a battle and drama since the Romans took up residence. And once, this medieval village was the Roman road that linked Iberia in Spain to Rome, Italy, via the Roman province, that is now what we call Provence. Later, the religious wars between the Catholic and the Protestant villages, yet now, at this time, it is an idyllic place to roam the medieval streets looking at the citadel, the Roman remains, the views, the beauty of stone and the architecture. I believe it is ranked among the most beautiful villages in France, so that makes it significant. Minob is mostly on my radar because of Dora Maar. I have always been fascinated by Picasso's women, almost more than Picasso himself. Of course he intrigues me, but the women who attach themselves to his world certainly have been on my mind over the years. They all have mythical presences and carry the aura and mystique of one of the world's most fascinating artists. Ma was fated to be named the Weeping Woman by Picasso, yet as an artist I believe it is true that she was the visionary, the photographer and the painter. Ma was an artist in her own right, perhaps avant-garde at the time, creating surrealist images and painting, certainly her own woman, before Picasso became her friend and lover. Mar was his equal and a person of considered intelligence, active politically. She was there to photograph and document Picasso painting his masterpiece, Guernica. Guernica was the artwork that Picasso painted in response to the bombing of the Spanish town, Guernica. Picasso would remain in exile to his homeland, Spain, for the rest of his life. Guernica was painted at the Rue Grande Augustine in the six-hour in Paris, his studio at the time, and not far from Ma's home in Paris too. Over the years, her pain and torment would be well documented, her connection to Picasso never fading as he moved on to the next woman and the next. Spiritually, Ma would struggle as the years followed. Picasso had received the house that we are about to look at in a handshake kind of deal, over an exchange for a painting during the war. He would later give the 18th century mansion in Minerbe to Ma, a token gesture for his freedom. After their separation and after many years in Paris, she would live in the Minerbe house, from the 1950s especially, painting and isolating herself up on the walled medieval village. Ma's legacy can be noted in a number of museums these days, The Tate Modern had a grand exhibition of her work only a few years ago. She died in 1997 at the age of 90. The house now is carefully maintained and serves as a residency for artists, writers and scholars. Wandering through the ancient village, admiring the stonework, the stone walls, the paths here and there, the town is exceptionally quiet and closed up, you could say. The view into the Luberon Valley is expansive. The farmland, picture perfect. Below a row of cypress pointing to the sky, eloquent evergreen beauties. Olive trees and what looks to be an artist's garden. Sculptures and designs I see below, formidable, noble, minerve. The wind, however, is blowing right through us, howling, you could say. We can barely keep our feet on the ground. Doramar's house is easy to find along the passage Doramar. There are plaques, the residence pour artis, founded in 2006 by the philanthropist Nancy Neckley. Dora Marr was in residence from 1944 to 1977. The photo of her in the window is an image to haunt you a little. Beautiful, mysterious, young, piercing. I feel her here. The stonework up to the front door feels ancient. A prominent entrance to a magnificent house. I imagine the rooms and standing in front of the window, accessing the drama on the street, perhaps in the summer, when the French celebrate their best still. Picasso was known to go a little wild, blowing his trumpet with all of the merrymakers on the streets back in the day. The deep green shutters on the windows, the gates to the stairs that lead you to a garden. I am pleased to see the boxed, hedged, so neat and tidy, all of it cared for in other words. There is definitely a gardener who tends these lawns. I stand at the gate holding the black fence, just looking, enchanted by the possibility this day. It is not for me beyond this, but perhaps one day, I think. Pressing my head forward as much as I can admire it all, the stately and grand home, where once an artist or two took fort, watching the sun move across the sky, humbled by the changing of the light. Walking across the front entrance, a cobbled path, I stop and look some more. The girls wait patiently with their coats pulled tightly. They are mostly happy to just wander the road and the walkway, just taking it in. They get me. They know that art will always have its way, opening me, pushing me. It is underneath everything, just pulsing like a beating heart. Standing by the edge, the stone wall that reaches to our waist is enough to protect the road and the ridge. Houses and perhaps a church continue around the perimeter. I wonder who held these stones in their hands and how long ago. There are walls of it and houses naturally built above the rocks. It reminds me a little of Orvieto in Italy that way. The houses seem private, mysterious, and ancient. The wind continues to whip around us, yanking my cap from my head. Fortunately, it just misses landing over the stone wall and lands on the ground next to my feet, laughing and nearly falling over from the current. I pick it up and wander the pathways around the village, admiring, taking photos here and there, just happy to be a part of the scenery. The sun has warmed these stones admirably over the years. There is a feeling of timelessness, vastness. I wonder if it is the Mistral that has caused this chill. The great wind I once read can get up to 90 kilometres an hour. We are trying to see it as far as we can, that Provencal blue still alive to its wonders. Peter Mayle, when he lived in Minerve, where he famously penned his book A Year in Provence, described the light of the Luberon region as sharp. As Australians, we understand that sharp, penetrating light. We come from the land of intense sun, drying our bones, parching our skin. It is all over my face. Here I feel it too, but it is winter and the startling wind has Grace tying her hood to her face and looking kind of like a maroon Eskimo. Thankfully I picked up that coat in Venice, a quick but clever buy at the time. Not only was Dora Mar an artist in this village, but for a short time so was Nicolas Distal, an abstract artist I talked about in podcast 33. I was in Antibes, marvelling at his work on the ground floor in the Musée Picasso. Russian-born Distal in 1953 bought the building Le Cassellé, a 16th-century beauty on the western end of Minerbe, with generous views of Provence. His son, Gustave Distal, would describe it. Positioned on a rocky promontory, it was like a large suspended ship. Distal moved in with his wife and young children his work flourished, painting the region and landscape in colourful, rich hues that saturated the Provençal landscape. In love and inspired by his new home, he was vigorous with his work over this time. However, this experience would not last. He would travel to Italy to paint and to marvel. He would later move to Antibes, alone on the coast, to study a new vision and paint. His emotional life took its toll, He became heavy and depressed. A love affair had run its course and turned sour. He ended his life not far away, despairing. His unfinished work remains, still luminous and poetic in its abstract beauty in the Musee Picasso. Distal's family would stay in Minobe for a time, his spirit alive within the walls of the house he had decorated and adorned. I knew about Destal at the time, but had forgotten he had lived in this area when I visited Minobe, although I had a book of his work at home on my shelf, Nicolas Distel in Provence, from an exhibit of his, on the cover, The Wonderful Agrigento, 1953-1954. to 1954. It was on return I studied it closely, reading the letters and the stories of his short life. The detail his son left at the end of the book, titled an inaccessible place, about living in Minerb. is quite moving and beautiful. This man would barely know his father, only his paintings telling the story of his life. We drive away from Minerb relieved to enter the vehicle. The wind always makes you feel slightly unhinged. Inside we regroup. Although cannot help but drive to point, Julian the old road to visit the infamous chateau that once had a film crew descend to make the film by Ridley Scott the good year that was adapted from one of Peter Mail's books so off we go to see the house it is pretty much just down the road from where we are staying like total tourists we pull over to the side to gawk at the house and the dormant vines in front yes the house protects the vines it's a gorgeous location if a little shabby beyond the views. We cannot really tell in truth. In winter, things do look neglected, gray, muted. I can see the peach yellow house from afar, and my feeling is the house would be quite magnificent on closer view. In the warmer months, you can stop by to try the wines produced by the Vinerons on this land. I am fascinated and we wander up the road to see the entrance to the property. It is a classic scene. A line of cypress, a gated property, stonework. I admire it all. We are curious but mindful that people do live here. And that is it. A few bike riders fly past on their bikes. It feels terribly French. And it is. Mostly it is just quiet. Of course it is lunchtime. The locals would be at home enjoying a long hot lunch. Instead we drive into Bonneau to admire the church and the large cypress tree that stands next to The entrance. We meander a little, but hunger strikes. We need food and jump back in and head to App for groceries. It is a great day for driving to admire the scenery. It is too cold to do anything else. You want to be protected inside of a house or a vehicle or something. We amble into the supermarket, find a trolley too hungry to be savvy shoppers. In goes anything that is not nailed down. Chavouac-quiche, pate-croute, mandarin, citron madeleine biscuits, pan chocolate. Pomme Dauphine, with frozen escargot, which was an incredibly bad idea, forgetting that anything frozen is mediocre indeed, better at a French restaurant lathered in herbs and butter and garlic, macaroon emenda, chips la gomande, poussin grande, aroma. It doesn't stop there, 90 euros later, which is no biggie, but we are on a train to Paris the next day at lunchtime. We drive back fast, eating dark chocolate and crunchy chips along the way. Terrible, but we are starved. We bake the quiche for lunch and fritter the rest of the afternoon away at the mass, the farmhouse, which will keep us warm and relaxed. Later, around sunset, we heat the escargot. The girls cannot believe we are eating snails. And they look huge. This is not wise, but the bottle of vin, le saffres, a rose-tinted white from the Luberon, washes them down. I relax with a vin and the rest of the Coatsard magazines. The girls carry on with their travel diaries, making beautiful marks. We all sit around the table. We make dinner, using as much as humanly possible from the large supermarket shop down in App. When the night turns black, we wander out to see the lights sparkling in the distance of Lacoste. At the top, it is lit up this night as if a party, but I suspect it is the old ruin of the Marquis de Sade a glowing marvel from here. Yes, a castle indeed. We rest and feel grateful for this time in the heart of Provence. The next day we go to Paris. The City of Lights will wait. I like what T.S. Eliot said, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And the end is near, dear one. The journey evolves with each new word, each triumphant note yet circles back again and again. There is nothing I have not seen or known before, for it was always there, awake and glazed with a transparent light floating just near me all of this time.